Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with A.J. Bain, the author of White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. A.J.'s written six books, is a New York Times bestseller, and has already been on this show once before to discuss his wonderful book, Dewey Defeats Truman. Hard to believe it's been almost two years since we've seen you. First episode 19, now episode 88. Welcome back to the show, A.J. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Great to have you. Before we start the interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. What does it mean to be white in America? What does it mean to be black? Is it merely the color of our skin? How does the history of how different races have been treated by the law and by fellow Americans weigh on those labels? What would it be like to straddle both worlds? Well, Walter White was born in 1893 to a woman whose grandmother was a rape victim of future president William Henry Harrison. AJ, you argue that the genealogical makeup of this future civil rights crusader reveals something explosive about the history of the families that make up our country. So what does his backstory reveal? Uh, well, starter, just for starters, thank you again for having me. Um, and it's interesting, um, there's so much sensitive material in this book. And, uh, you know, you're just the word that you use when you use that word rape, I don't know that I would have used that to describe that relationship hmm. between Walter White's great-grandmother and William Henry Harrison. I don't know no, enough about it. Um, I just wanted okay. to say that. But, yeah, but please, what's important, yeah. the point that you're making is, is, is very astute and very important. Um, if I were to describe Walter White, he described himself as the enigma of a black man occupying a white body. Uh, his parents were born of the last generation of African-Americans born into slavery um, and it, who could remember it, who could speak of it from memory. Um, and there were generations of the white family that were pro the product of slave women who had no rights to their bodies and slave owners who could act with impunity. And so by the time Walter White was born, uh, he was a black man, went to a black school, graduated from a black college, went to a black church, identified as black, parents were black, but he had white skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. You quote a newspaper article that says, he was a Negro by choice, but those are not words that he would have used by choice. In fact, you say he knew from a young age which side he wanted to be on. That's absolutely right. So Walter White, uh, you know, he, when he grows up in Atlanta, he certainly, you know, confronts the situation uh, when he looks himself in the mirror that he could live his future as a white man or as a black man. Um, and he had this formative experience, which I cover in chapter one of White Lies, where he witnesses um, the Atlanta race riot of 1906. He's a kid. Um, and at, on the second night of that race riot, there's a, a mob of white people um, who approach the white family home um, at, intent on burning it to the ground. And Walter White is there looking at the window and he has this moment where he realizes that these people who are coming to burn his home down, he's 12 years old. You can see him standing there and looking out the window, you know, the, the, the flames from torches reflected in his eyes. And he realizes that, um, that there's grave, grave injustice in this country. And he has this moment where he says, quote, I knew which side I was on. And that's when his life as a civil rights crusader began. We do want to talk more about that life and how he starts to impact the civil rights movement in our country, the, certainly the beginnings of what would become the 1960s civil rights movement. But um, all writers, I want to ask before we do that, all writers have choices. And you've done lots on Harry Truman, lots on FDR, two white men who were consequential in the first half of the 20th century. Were you exposed to Walter White during your writing and research on those two figures or in some other way? Absolutely. Every book I've written has fallen out of the one before. So uh, I've always known which book I was going to write next by the time I was done writing the one before until now. Right now, that is not the case. But um, uh, we can talk about that later. I first read about Walter White when I read a book called When Harlem Was in Vogue, which I highly, highly recommend to your listeners by David Levering Lewis. I read that my first year of graduate school many, many years ago. 
Uh, and I, I was fascinated with Walter White. That was 25 years ago. So he's, this book has been brewing in my head for that long. But at the same time, he appears as sort of a minor character in the last three books that I've written um, because it was impossible to write about Harry Truman, impossible to write about the 1948 election, the founding of the United Nations, without mentioning the impact of Walter White's work. Why did you say this story has to be fully told for a modern audience? What was missing in the Walter White scholarship? Well, it's stunning to me, stunning. As, as I decided to write White Lies, it stunned me that people don't know who Walter White was. If you, you mention the name Walter White, everybody laughs and says, oh, Breaking Bad. And uh, I think if you read- I have a Breaking Bad question in, later on. So don't <laughs> go too far. I want to get, get to it, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, it always comes up because people don't know who Walter White is. If I was to say, you know, I think that Walter White was the most significant civil rights leader of the first half of the 20th century. Um, people would say that can't be, Bame, you're lying. That can't be true because otherwise we would know who he is today. But the fact is that to me, I think if you read the book, you would agree it is true. For much of the first half of the 20th century, he was the most impactful and powerful. He was the face of black power in America. And the irony of that, because he had white skin, blonde hair and blue eyes, was something that we needed to explore. But more importantly, there's so much about Walter White's life and his story that is about America and race itself in a way that I think that people should understand our past and where a lot of the stuff we're dealing with today comes from. And the generational aspect of this is interesting because we are so familiar with the civil rights leaders who really came of age in the 1960s. But 1893, when he was born, is much earlier than some of the other leaders were familiar with when they were born. Martin Luther King, 1929, Rosa Parks, 1913, John Lewis, 1940, Medgar Evers in 1925. 1893 is kind of an auspicious year for an African-American to be born in this country because it was right in the thick of how Jim Crow or of when Jim Crow is taking hold. But the interesting thing is Atlanta was spared some of that. It was just from reading your book, it was sort of on an island. That was kind of the impression that I got from it. Um, what was happening in Georgia and in Atlanta in the 1890s when Walter White was born there? Well, the Jim Crow era set in, you know, right when, right around the time Walter White was born, but he grew up in Atlanta, which was very much the capital of the progressive South. And so uh, he didn't see it for much of his youth. Um, what was going on all, all throughout the rest of Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina. Um, it was said in Atlanta that people were making too much money to, to care what color people's skin was. Uh, and sorry, I'm turning that off. Oh, that's okay. It happens. How can we tell people not to get in touch with us for a whole hour? You know, <laughs> phones just go off and off all day. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, Walter White grew up in Atlanta where, where, um, it wasn't until 1906, until the Atlanta race riot and, you know, when Jim Crow really descended on Atlanta at that time, but throughout his life elsewhere, that's when Jim Crow was setting. And that's when African-Americans, when black people were told they could no longer vote, uh, when uh, signs appeared above water fountains, you know, colored only, white only, where, you know, a lot of black people who had been shopping in certain places and going to certain restaurants were suddenly told they were no longer welcome. They were no longer allowed to vote. Um, all that happened during Walter White's youth. What were his earlier years like? Um, how did, you mentioned a little bit of this, how did seeing the Atlanta race ride of 1906 with his own eyes begin to shape him? Um, and what did he start to realize about what other people saw in him. One of the quotes in the book that I love is he was going to come of age as America was changing. So how were his early years shaped by what he was seeing, not just with his own eyes, the events in, in front of him, but in how people were interpreting his own existence? Well, um, I think in 1906, he was very much stunned and shocked by this, by this race riot because it, 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 the Jim Crow era descended on Atlanta later than it did in other places, but very, very quickly. So let me give you an example. When life started changing in his youth, there was a very peculiar uh, phenomenon going on with streetcars in Atlanta. 
And, it, uh, you know, during the Jim Crow era, if you were black, you had to sit as far back in a bus or a streetcar as possible and sort of move forward as the seats were available. If you white, you, you sat all the way in the front of the bus or streetcar. Um, but the whites were in this peculiar situation because they looked white, particularly Walter. And if he sat on the back of the bus, people would give him all sorts of, you know, hassle him. If he sat on the front of the bus, there would be people who knew who he was and castigate him for that reason. So that's just one incident in which he, the, the sort of the, 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 uh, his own racial identity became very complicated as, as a young age. And he realized that once he, if he ever left Atlanta, he had choices to make of which side he could be on. And in the end, which is why he, we call the book, The Double Life of Walter White, he really lived in both worlds. And he um, could have fallen victim to those 1906 race riots, but he realized at the last second he would be spared because people were looking the other way. Well, what happens there, there, there was this mob intent on burning his home down. According to Walter White's memory, what he says happened is he stood there and his father handed him a gun and said, don't shoot until the first of the white mob puts his foot on our lawn and then keep on shooting until you can't anymore. That's what Walt, how Walter White remembered this moment. Uh, but suddenly there was a shot rang out, some gunfire elsewhere on the street and the mob dispersed. So the family home was never burned down. But in that moment, that's the moment when he said, I knew which side I was on. Plessy v. Ferguson, I didn't realize, is about a mixed, is, is centered around a mixed race person. And I didn't realize that until I read your book. 1896, very important Supreme Court law. I was raised, my father was a judge, and I was raised to believe that the Supreme Court was this, this hallowed institution. But in fact, you know, the Supreme Court made what I would consider grave errors in the past. Plessy versus Ferguson was one of them, because that was the Supreme Court decision that really sanctioned segregation in America. It was the separate but equal law. So hopefully happened, our listeners agree with you that hopefully you're not making a controversial statement there. Let's hope. We never know. Right. Uh, we'll see if your phone starts ringing. Um, <laughs> it's the separate but equal law, which meant um, black people would have their own schools, white people would have their own schools, and that was legal and uh, public funds can be spent on those schools and the schools should be equal. And, uh, uh, one of the things that in the subtitle of this book, I call it The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. And really, what there's many different ways I'm hoping that readers can construe what I mean by America's Darkest Secret. But one way to look at it, and I think what I really intended, was that there was this massive gap between the America as it existed in reality and the America that patriotic Americans believed, you know, existed according to the founding documents of the Declaration of Independence, the United States Constitution, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment. You can say I'm American patriot and I believe in this and I believe in the Constitution. Well, then there, uh, Walter realized, Walter White realized there was this grave gap between that America and the one that really existed in which take Plessy versus Ferguson. They were supposed to be separate but equal schools. Walter White's whole life in civil rights began because in Atlanta, the school board was trying to cancel seventh grade. So there was no public high school for black people at all in order so there would be funds to build a new high school for white people. So how can you say the schools were separate but equal if there was school for white people and literally it didn't exist for black? Reading that part of your book, it's always shocking to even just read the details of how they wanted to do with a full uh, do away with a full grade of education for for American or people who should have been considered American citizens, it's just it, it's important to remind ourselves of the deep um, place that the difficulties in our country are rooted in uh, right now. Um, how did uh, I'm curious about this? How did having such a close relationship with his father shape him? That's a great question. I think, um, you know, there's this poignant moment where Walter White is asked, he's plucked from obscurity and asked at this young age to move to New York City uh, to work for the NAACP, which is where this book sort of clicks into second gear and the sort of plot, if you will, really digs in. And Walter White has to make this decision. He's concerned about his ability to support himself. His mother is telling him, you can't go to New York City. You will be corrupted by evil and blah, blah, blah. And he goes on a, a, a ride in a horse and buggy with his father. And it's such a poignant moment to me where he, he talks to his father. He says, 
I don't know what I should do. And his father says, believe in God, trust in yourself. And, you know, uh, if you're going to take on this challenge, do give it all you got and never turn back because it is uh, a deeply complicated uh, situation with regards to race in this country. And you are a highly educated, highly talented person. And this is your calling. And off Walter White goes to New York. What was it like for him when he started venturing out of his college environment and meeting white folks across rural Georgia? And then, of course, in New York, which we can get into later. But, but what was it like for him when he got out of this sort of for African-Americans, by African-Americans educational system that he was in? Great question, Evan. Um, right after Walter White graduates from All Black Atlanta University, and there's a photo of his graduation class in, in, in the book, which I think is really interesting and moving. He gets a job selling insurance. And so he has these trips throughout rural uh, Georgia. And that's when he sort of begins to understand what life is like outside of Atlanta. Um, he begins to understand the fear and uh, of, of you could see in a black person's eyes when what appeared to be a white man was knocking on their door. Um, but more importantly, what we're going to talk about, I think the first half of the book is really about Walter White and his undercover investigations. When he begins to live a double life, he goes undercover posing as a white man to uh, 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 investigate uh, hate crimes in the South. And it's during these early years before that happens, when he's going out into rural Georgia, he learns the dialects, he learns uh, how white people and black people speak, the mannerisms, all of this becomes very important to him when he tries to, you know, don this, these personas and, and live in those worlds in the future. In that fight over the schools that you mentioned, um, uh, which is over whether seventh grade should be kept or done away with by Af four African-American students. He gives his first speech and he quotes Pat uh, Patrick Henry and he says, give me liberty or give me death. What does that reveal about his sense of right and wrong and how far we had to go in this country to protect rights? That's an interesting question. And there's, there's, there's two ways to answer it. One is, that was a, a, an amazing moment in his youth where he didn't expect to be on a stage giving a speech. It was impromptu. He was called to say a few words at this meeting to save the seventh grade in Atlanta. And all of this is happening very early in the book in chapter two. And so he, he's afraid to give a speech. He doesn't know what to say. And he gets up there and he just says whatever is on the top of his mind. So, you know, how much we should read into it, I don't know. Um, uh, but at the same time, it's you're right. It's at this important moment where he, you know, he lays down this gauntlet, like we're going to do everything we can. It's really a moment that illuminates the entire future of his life, this maniacal, maniacal quest. I think if, if anything else, you read this book, however you judge Walter F. White, because he was a highly, highly complicated picture, person with terrific faults. Um, one thing about him you could never challenge is this maniacal quest of what his life became to uh, solve, uh, to, to get rid of the color line in America. Just as Martin Luther King would later say, there should be, it shouldn't matter whether your skin is white or black, how you're treated, whether you have protection under the laws, whether you are, have access to education, et cetera. One thing I'm super curious about is what your sources were for this book. Where are all of Walter White's papers uh, housed and how did you go about uh, collecting them and, and researching them? There's an interesting story there. So um, I went to Yale University where Walter White's papers are, a lot of them, and mm -hmm. uh, to decide if there was enough material to write this book. Because I, I do, you know, you can't make this stuff up. You know, I hope if literally people, you can't make it up. You can't. Yeah. I hope if people pick up the book, look at the endnotes. Uh, it's always important to look at the endnotes because that's where you see if the writer is really doing his job. Um, and I think if you read these end notes, wow, there was so much documentation, huge amounts. And that's why I took years to write the book. But there's the story I want to tell is um, I went to Yale. I spent a week researching these papers and I knew right then there was a book to be written here because there was so much material. Um, and then I went to the New York Public Library because there was a bunch of stuff there. But most of what I needed was in the NAACP papers. And I remember being in New York City 
And it was March 12th. I saw my son perform at Carnegie Hall. It was a thrilling moment for my family. And then uh, my family went home and I was researching these papers at the Schomburg Center in Harlem. And that's when the pandemic hit. That was literally the week when the NBA shut down their seasons. I was in New York and there was chaos and fear. And I went home and I was like, how am I going to write this book? I can't leave my office. The pandemic started, but it turns out the NAACP papers, millions and millions and millions of documents are all digitized and searched through a database called ProQuest. So the work that would normally take me two years in, in, you know, in New York City and Washington, D.C., I could do in four months here in my office and very, very thoroughly. And what were there or what was there? There were, there were, there's diary, there um, are newspaper articles, and then communication and correspondence between the NAACP and other people. And also, I guess, his final reports too, right? Yes. So what he would do, like, for example, in the first half of the book, uh, he begins to live this double life and and, uh, conduct these undercover investigations in the South. There would be a murder in the South. And he would go down, pose as a white man, integrate himself into the community and get the facts. And while he was doing that, he was always and constantly keeping a diary, writing a reporter's notes, and sending memorandums back to the NAACP headquarters in New York saying, this is what I'm doing. These are the conversations I'm having. These are the facts. And he all understood. of that really enabled me to get inside his head and uh, write this, this, this story of his life in great detail. And he understood that, that the documentation would be so, so important, especially writing as a black man against the white power structure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the fact that all of those documents exist uh, is a testament to the important work that our archivists in this country do. Before we get, yeah, that did occur to me as you talked about the New York Public Library, how important that all is. Um, Before we get to some of his investigations, because a couple of them are riveting, um, I wanted to ask about his first impression of Harlem. Uh, It's an area I know well. It's an area that I essentially, you know, grew up in, at least for the schooling part of my life. I went to school on 104th Street and then on 100th Street and had tons of friends and drove through there every day and would, uh, you know, get off the subway up there and walk around and hang out. So uh, what was his first impression of Harlem as he gets there in, I guess, the 19, late 1910s? He gets there uh, on a very cold winter day in 1918, at the beginning of 1918. And by the way, I'm curious, we'll, we'll take the conversation offline. I lived on 100th Street for eight, 100th and Lex for eight years across oh the street. Oh my God, right down the street from my oh. middle school. But go ahead, yeah. Um, so Walter White, he moves to New York at Harlem at the beginning of 1918. 13 days, his 13th day working at uh, the NAACP, he reads about this murder in the South. And so that's when he begins to live a double life. So the first half of the book is really about his undercover investigations, posing as a white man in the South and cracking these criminal hate crimes, these hate crimes. But at the same time, he's living openly as a black man in Harlem. And he gets there right in time to not just participate in, but really be a key figure uh, in the Harlem Renaissance. So the story of his life in in the first half of the book, all through the 1920s, the story of his life illuminates both of those worlds, the, 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 the fear and injustices of the South and this thrilling, monumental, and really fun um, movement that's happening in Harlem. And just real quick, uh, root us in the uh, beginning of the NAACP. How did it start? Who started it? And what were their original goals? Um, X, again, great question. Um, early in the 20th century, there was something called uh, the Niagara Movement. Um, it was a conference that was held in Niagara. Um, uh, it was W.E.B. Du Bois who called this conference, and um, they brought together uh, elite black intellectuals. Du Bois was, of course, the first, like, the most respected black intellectual of his era by far. Uh, the first black man to get a Ph.D. from Harlem. Uh, it, it, so... It, the whole NAACP spawned from that Niagara conference. And what it sought to do was bring together intellectuals, both white and black. It was very important that uh, it was to be non-political and the organization sought to use uh, protest and um, activism and uh, success in the arts and literature um, to lift the black race out of poverty, get people educated, get voting rights, um, 
and uh, and that's how it began. So when Walter White arrives in in early 1918, the NAACP is really just beginning to become a national movement. Um, there's there was a race riot in East St. Louis in 1917, and this is a very moving moment right before Walter White joins the NAACP when James Weldon Johnson who is a fascinating figure uh, and was also a very important figure in the early years of the NAACP, organized something called um, the Silent Parade. And what that was, you saw 10,000 black people, all the women dressed in white, all the men dressed in black suits, marching silently without saying a word, children too, holding signs saying, we demand justice in America. And it was completely silent. And that was the first event that put the NAACP on the map nationally. That was the first time a lot of people heard of it. So by the time Walter White gets there about a year later, it's still this fledgling organization that people are just learning about. Um, I need to ask now about a very painful, um, painful moment in the book. And, you know, you're such a good writer that it really makes it vivid. And um, it was tough for me to read it. But I want to ask about uh, Jim, I hope I'm saying the name right, because he certainly deserves at least that. Um, who is Jim McIlheron? Um, uh, I, always, I always understood it to be McElheron. McElheron? Um, well, there you go. Um, I'm glad I asked. Uh, so who is he? Um, and, you know, how does he wind up falling victim to um, a lynching um, that really is too violent to, for, to even describe out loud because it's just so uh, so heinous. Well, you're you're seizing on a really important point. There were t- tremendously tremendously difficult decisions, tremendous that I had to make as a writer when I'm describing these things because I wanted to tell the truth. I wanted readers to understand what really happened in, in our country uh, and the, some of the grotesqueness of some of these events. But at the same time, I wanted, I didn't want it to be so terrifying that people wouldn't pick up the book because it was just so, so disgusting. Uh, so there, there was a very fine line to, for me to walk uh, as I was sitting here at my desk constructing this thing. Now, James McElheron uh, in the tiny town of Estill Springs, uh, Tennessee, um, he uh, gets in a fight, murders a white man. He's hiding out. Uh, the dogs are chasing him. Uh, he's apprehended and tortured and murdered. And Walter White reads about this in the newspaper. It's again, his 12th or 13th day at the NAACP in 1918. And Walter White gets to this office and he's like, okay, the NAACP puts the, you know, the normal machinery. This is what we do when these types of racist race, you know, hate crimes happen is that we write a letter to the governor of the state, the attorney general of the state and the president of the United States. And we make those letters available to the press demanding justice for this crime in order to in hopes of putting pressure on people in these local communities to do something to make sure that somebody is held accountable uh, in instances like this and nobody ever it was at that time in the south so walter white has this idea he says well instead of just doing that why don't i living openly as a black man in harlem why don't i pose as a white man go down there, integrate myself in the community and get the facts, what really happened to James McElheron. And then I'll come back and write an article about it in a national magazine. And that's what he does. So he goes down to Estill Springs, Tennessee. Um, He poses as a white man. He tells people that he is a traveling salesman with the Excellento Medicine Company. Um, And it takes him one day to get all the facts because if he is a white man in this small town and he asks questions about the stuff, People are more than happy to share what they did to James McElheron because they know they can talk with impunity. Nothing's going to happen to them because black people were not represented in politics, on police forces. Uh, They had no access to the law. Um, And this lawlessness was exactly what Walter White wanted to expose. And so after that first case, he writes an article in The Crisis, which is the NAACP's national magazine, and it causes a sensation. And he's like, you know what? I'm onto something here. And that's the first of over 40 of these in undercover investigations that unfold in the first half of White Lies. Uh, you're kind of answering my question anyway, but I want to ask it. What does it say about the way we talk about race and the way race permeates our law enforcement structures um, and the rest of American society that it was theorized that the only way to truly learn about what was going on was to visit undercover? Well, that's true. That's that, that's that's absolutely right. Um, and you know, Walter White was uniquely gifted 
and you know to be able to do these kinds of things because he was capable of living a double life for one obvious reason he was the enigma of a black man occupying a white body how did woodrow wilson react um and we know you know that i mean we've covered woodrow wilson on this show a couple of times i mean he clearly um had racist tendencies and was racist in many ways um how did he react to the report um and then what impact did the report that he issued have um that uh, james weldon johnson and mem- and uh, members of the naacp visited the white house shortly after the killing of james McElhern and said, hey, you know, President Wilson, what are you going to do about this? And the president said, basically, I'll, I'll try to make a speech about it. Um, and he doesn't. But it, it ultimately, when, the, you know, Walter White's investigations begin to get more publicity and people are inflamed, uh, Wilson does make a statement, you know, saying that it's against the law to lynch black people. We should not be doing that in this country. What a surprise. Um, but the, I think the more important point to make at that point is by the time President Wilson makes that statement, Walter White's investigations are starting to make him very famous and really raising the awareness of this terrible issue in, in this country through massive amounts of publicity. But also all of that publicity is opening people's eyes to the growing power of the NAACP. Uh, tell us about Hampton Smith. That was another early case that you covered in this book. Um, I was amazed and fascinated by the conversation that Walter White had with a shopkeeper. Um, the shopkeeper basically starts to say that states' rights are what will protect us from being from facing consequences for these lynchings. And he literally says, you know, we're immune from consequences because of this. And, and it's just interesting that that's the, the argument that wound up being used in the, uh, you know, 50s and 60s over different civil rights bills and different civil rights efforts. That's absolutely right. So uh, Walter White is, uh, uh, Walter Francis White is conducting one of his investigations. I believe that one was in Phillips County, Arkansas, but I have to look that up. Um, and, and he's in the shop uh, posing as a white man, and he has this conversation. He later wrote about this conversation in an article that appeared in American Mercury Magazine in 1930. Um, and he described the conversation vividly in vivid detail um, and what was said in that conversation. Um, and that conversation appears in White Lies. What the shopkeeper, Walter White is saying like, well, there's this lynching thing going, you know, that happened in this in this county. Tell me about it. And the shopkeeper said, well, this happened and this happened. And he used some pretty heavy duty uh, words in his description. And Walter White says, well, why doesn't anybody do anything? And, and this man says, nobody is gonna arrest anybody for the lynching of a black man here. Um, if politicians wanna do that, they'll get voted out of, out of office. If uh, uh, you know, no policeman is going, to, is going to try to hold any account- anyone accountable for the murder of these, of these black people in this instance, multiple, because uh, they'll be castigated in their community. They might even be killed. Um, and so there was no, there was no reason, there was no motive for anyone, any white people in these small towns in the South on, in law enforcement or in politics to stop this phenomenon. He also investigates a, a series of major events. He investigates the Red Summer of 1919, the Tulsa Massacre of 1921, the Loman lynchings of 1926. Um, you don't have to describe each one, but how did his work on all of these cases define the future scholarship about this time period and of racial violence in this era in general? Let me answer the question this way. Um, The first sentence of the book says that a lot of readers are going to read this and find it impossible to believe that the events you're about to read in this book actually happened in the United States of America. Um, Because there's still vast, vast numbers of people who know nothing about these chapters of, of our American history. I hear from readers all the time who say, I was a history major and I knew nothing about this. Um, but basically what Walter White was doing and in the first half of this book, this book, all of these undercover investigations, anytime there was a major event, the Tulsa massacre, the, as you were saying, the Loman lynches, the, the Ozean Sweet case in Detroit, all of these really important chapters in our American history, he investigated. And so his story illuminates all of those things that, that happened that people should know about. Um, 
at the same time, like for example, the Ozean Suite, there are two trials in 1925 and 26, hugely impactful uh, events in our country with regard to race. Happened in Detroit. And um, Walter's work there illuminates that story, but also as you see him conducting these investigations throughout the 1920s, he begins to become really famous and tremendously ambitious. So uh, by the time he becomes chief executive of the NAACP in 1930, he's become a major national figure. We just saw anti-lynching legislation become law in the United States. Walter White tried to enact it 100 years ago, a century ago. What would he say if he could see that three people still voted against it? To me, it's fascinating. So uh, let me tell, tell your listeners, right at the beginning, when Walter White begins his work with the NAACP, there's a congressman named Dyer who uh, launches this bill to try to enact a federal anti-lynching law. And Walter White got uh, involved right away in 1918. And it took all the way till 2022 for this actual law to become real in our country. But the point I can make here is that these, uh, Walter's, Walter White's work um, trying to get Congress to enact a federal anti-lynching law, the, that work is, puts him in the hot seat, um, where for the first time and numerous subsequent times throughout the 20s and 30s, he's asked to testify before Congress. And of course, we have all that dialogue because it all exists in the congressional record. And those conversations on the floor of Congress in the United States of America, to me, are fascinating because you have this figure who looks white, but is black, uh, sitting there saying, we have, there has to be a way for people who conduct these hate crimes to be held accountable. If local law enforcement doesn't do it, then the federal government has a right and a duty to do so. So that's his argument. And you have members of Congress, white people, members of Congress in this country, on the floor of Congress, arguing against that, saying that lynching should be justified, that, they, that, that it should be an actual phenomenon in our country, and it, people who conduct these hate crimes shouldn't even be held accountable. In the 1960s, Lyndon Johnson says, um, after he passes uh, different civil rights bills, um, he says, we just delivered the South to the Republican Party for, for good. And he turned out to be generally correct about that. Uh, you, though, say that Walter White was arguably the most powerful force in the historic realignment of black political power from the party of Lincoln, as you say, the Republicans, to the Democratic Party. How did that happen? Great question. So the second half of this book, I would say, generally speaking, when, he, when Walter White becomes chief executive of the NAACP, um, he, he, it's, his life becomes about politics. He, he wants to become a major national political figure, and to him, all roads lead to the White House. That's the seat of power in this country. Um, and to, to answer your, your question more specifically, there's this amazing moment in 1926, right at the end of 1925, beginning in 1926, where Walter becomes uh, a partner in the Ozean Suite case with Clarence Darrow who is this fascinating legal phenomenon, a philosopher of the courts. Uh, Darrow is, moves Walter White so much that when Walter has a son, he names his son after Clarence Darrow. Um, Clarence Darrow gives a speech in a Harlem church. And it's this fascinating moment where the light bulb goes off in Walter White's uh, you know, head. He's still a young guy. And five years would go by before he becomes chief executive of the NAACP and a major political figure. Five years before that, he hears this speech by Clarence Darrow in which Clarence Darrow says, in a black church to a black crowd, you people have to change the way you think about voting rights. In America at that time, if you were black, without question, you voted for the Republican Party because that was the party of Lincoln and Lincoln had freed the slaves. And what Sweet said is, your vote doesn't count for anything. The Republican Party is doing nothing for you. The Democratic Party is doing nothing for you. You need to vote according to whichever candidate is going to help you in your striving for justice and equality in America. And Walter White realizes that's what we have to do, that this future uh, is, shouldn't just be about activism and uh, you know, investigations and writing articles. It's about voting rights and fighting in the courts. I don't want to gloss over, like we have to gloss over some of it because we're running a little bit out of time here, a little bit short. But before we get to some wrap-up questions here, I wanted to ask about his literary career and the Harlem Renaissance. Um, How did he shape 
New York City, black New York City, and also the education that I would get at 103rd and Madison um, 60 years after his, well, not 60, I wish it was 60, uh, maybe 30 years or 40 years after his passing. Well, um, you know, we started to talk a little bit earlier about how in, you know, when Walter White in the 1930s, he lived openly as a white man investigating this stuff in the South and openly as a black man as part of the Harlem Renaissance and how exciting that was. He really played two roles, three roles in the Harlem Renaissance. One, he threw these outrageous parties. It was so fun to write about them. George Gershwin debuted Rhapsody in Blue on Walter White's piano. That's where uh, the creme de la creme of intellectual, you know, whoever was doing anything in the white world in Greenwich Village and the black world in Harlem got together. Uh, and there was no color line at those parties. Now, Walter also became a famous novelist um, and also a failed novelist, which is sort of interesting. During uh, the 1920s, he had one hit book and then a book that really flopped. Um, but one of the things that I loved about his character that illuminated who he was, he was, he had a lot of faults. You'll get into the book and you'll say, this was not always the greatest person in the world, but, uh, you know, he's a, to me, he was a pretty likable guy. And one of the things that I found so likable about him is all of the work he did to, to help others be successful. The singers of the Harlem Renaissance, the poets, um, he became the sort of unofficial press operative for all of these people, trying to get people to understand who Langston Hughes was. He wanted to help them sell books. He wanted to get them gigs on Broadway. And he was very successful in helping all these people do that. What would he have said about the, now he dies in 1955. Um, We're not used to our civil rights leaders being gone by the time uh, the 1960s roll around. What would he have said about the 1960s civil rights movement and the legislation ultimately signed by Lyndon Johnson? Well, you know, Walter White's life when he saw huge leaps in progress in this country in terms of voting rights and uh, holding people accountable for hate crimes, massive amounts of progress in this country. Um, and one way to answer that question is to just look, when he writes his last book, he's dying and he's trying to finish this last book. It's called How Far the Promised Land with a question mark on the end. And he writes in there, he's like, we, you know, this is a portrait of democracy at this time in my life. Uh, and he, these huge strides that have been made. And he's like, for example, I, 20 years ago, I couldn't think of writing a book about this without having at least one chapter about lynching in America because it was such a phenomenon. And he's like, I don't have to do that because the, we've solved that issue to some degree. Uh, and that's, that illuminates the amount of progress that we've made in my lifetime. And in between the time he dies and in between the time the book is actually published, the Emmett Till murder happens. And it just really points out the fact that we're still, even all these years later, still struggling with these issues in America. So I think he was very proud of the progress re- that had been made in his lifetime and his own personal success in making that progress happen. Uh, but w- also, wow, uh, there's a long way to go. Given he straddled these worlds, what did he learn about being black that might have been hidden from other black people? Well, that's a great question. So much of this book is about identity. And there's this one scene in the book where he dresses that issue very head on. Uh, he's in a church, a black church, and uh, there's someone who appears to be white like himself handing out literature. And then he was with a writer named Conrad, a guy whose name was really hard to, uh, his last name to pronounce, but it's not important. And this writer says to him, well, that guy, he, you know, he looks like a white person. And Walter White says, no, he's not. And he says, if there is one drop of black blood, then you are black. And that's how this country views people. Because if you say that you're not a black person, if you have one drop of black blood through your lineage and people find out about it, they're going to crucify you. They're going to call you a liar and terrible things. So that was his sort of sense of his own identity. And when he became famous, people used to write about, you know, using fractions and articles to describe how black or how white he was. And he said, none of that matters. I'm a black man. I'm living openly as a black man. I do not appear to be, but that's who I am. And it should not matter. What was it like for you to write this book as a white man? Um, you know, the Los Angeles Times quoted me saying that I cried every day I wrote this book, and I did say that to them, and it pretty much was true. Um, there's so much in this book that brought out a lot of emotion in me, trying to understand his life and the events that he saw, and, you know, realities about 
the country I live in and that I love, and trying to confront all of this history and understand what, you know, how we got to where we are today. A lot of it was really painful. Um, I don't think that I, I could have written the book if it, I wasn't writing about a man who led a double life and who really identified at moments in his life, living openly as a white man, for example, it, you know, he mixed a lot in political circles uh, and he was criticized for pretending to be black. Um, I don't think I could have written the book if he hadn't been a person who had lived a double life. Um, only because if for no other reason, I feel like readers might think it was not authentic and, and it would concern me to spend years and years of my life to complete a book that would be criticized before anybody read a single word about it. For me, it was really hard. It's like reading about the Holocaust. When you get to the parts of World War II books where the Holocaust is described in detail, um, I just have a really hard time reading about it. I do break down and cry. And for me in this book, it was the lynchings. I just couldn't, you just can't believe the the, uh, the the notion of taking justice into your own hands in that way and to torture a human being. Um, it was just so hard for me to read about it. I can't even imagine what it was like to read through the archives, the unvarnished descriptions. There's a lot I, I had to leave out. I mean, there's, there's one story of a woman named Mary Turner, which was probably, you know, there's two parts in the book that I would describe. They're kind of gruesome, you know, it's gruesome. Uh, and Mary Turner was one of them. Um, I don't really want to talk about it on this podcast, but when you get to that moment in the book, you know, hold on tight because what happened to that woman, there's a little plaque um, honoring her uh, in the place that she was killed in a very rural place in Georgia. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I, I agree. How would your impression of your family history change if you found out you had black roots? That's a fascinating question that I have not been asked. Um, I think that, I think the answer to that would be not at all. Only in so much that I feel I was taught by my parents to be proud of myself but that that pride has to be earned. That uh, you don't just get to believe in yourself. You have to earn that belief in yourself. And so I've conducted that my life that way. I've tried, try to teach my children that. And so uh, I don't think there could be a revelation about lineage of my past that could change that. You called him Walter in the book as opposed to White. Um, maybe it's just something I noticed. Was that something that you did on purpose? Is that more conversational to say Walter or was calling him white awkward for you, even though it was his name? That's interesting in so much that one critic, I, you know, I get the, the best reviews I've ever gotten ever by far were of white lies without a doubt. I got one review that was not a good review. That was the worst review I've ever gotten. And I expected the book to be a little polarizing is very sensitive issues. Uh, but the only bad review I've ever, really bad review I've ever gotten of any book was of this one. And one of the things that the writer seized on was that I had called him the main character, Walter, and that, you know, he, this reviewer didn't particularly like that. That was a conscious decision we made. Um, I, I think that criticism is rather, you know, whatever, what says more about the- I'm just curious as to why. I don't know why anyone would criticize you for it, but- I don't know, but this critic seemed to taste, take issue with it. I thought it was really um, mean-spirited and, and petty. But anyway, the point, just to ask, answer your question, is that um, it became difficult and a little confusing at certain types, times in the book because there's so much use of the word white and so much use of the word black. And because of the, the, you know, the, the style that we're using now, black is to be capitalized and white is not. And so there were a number of moments where you're using the word white and I just got confusing to the reader. It's my yeah, capital my versus lowercase, which is it? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you know, the Washington post always capitalized W and white and B and black and the New York times capitalizes the B and black, but not the W and white. It just became a confusing issue for me. It was my editor who suggested that we just call her Walter. And I thought how, you know, I, I didn't think, it, I couldn't think, you know, that anybody would ever possibly take offense to such a thing. That book reviewer, should have asked a follow-up question before criticizing you for it because your answer makes perfect sense. So to go to print without double checking as to why to me is, I don't want to editorialize too much, but that seems relatively irresponsible on their part. 
I appreciate that. The one thing that you want that I'm always careful to do with all my writing that I think all writers, even if you're writing an email, you just want your sentences to be clear. That's that simple. All right, we've made it here. We've made it to the point where I can ask about Breaking Bad. Now, I haven't seen the... (laughs) I haven't seen the show in seven or eight years. I don't know anything about why they chose the name Walter White for that character. Maybe it's because he straddled the worlds of drug user and pathetic husband. Um, that's just That just kind of popped into my head. Why do you think they chose the name Walter White for that character? And was it based on the subject of your book, White Lies? I'd be willing to guess that the writers of Breaking Bad had never heard of Walter White uh, Francis White, um, and I, don't th- I think it was, you know, the, it was just a tile, entirely random coincidence, but um, I'm hoping that uh, the writers of that show will know who Fran- Walter Francis White is in the future. Dare I ask the question, who is next? Um, thank you, Evan, for asking that question, and I will tell you that uh, for the first time in my life, um, I'm going to sit and read for pleasure. And I don't know the answer to the question, which is terrifying, you know, um, but I'm, I want to go back and reread The Great Gatsby. I want to go back and reread Leaves of Grass and read some uh, Ursula Le Guin, you know, uh, just some, some, some to, to, to remember that reading, uh, why I fell in love with reading to begin with. Reading fiction for you is helpful, is where you find your pleasure in reading, not nonfiction. It's been so long since I've really had the time to read. I mean, I studied, you know, literature in graduate school. I read a tremendous amount, number of novels, and I loved it. Um, uh, I just picked up uh, Leon Uris's book on the founding of Israel that I want to reread. Uh, I forget what it's called. Uh, but anyway, yes, I haven't had time to read fiction in years, and I love reading fiction. There's so much contemporary fiction that is such high quality. I want to dig in. I'm embarrassed to say I have not read a book of fiction since I was assigned one in either high school or college, whenever the last time was. I've got hundreds and hundreds of books here, and they're all nonfiction. I've ranked about 450 on Goodreads, and every single one of them is nonfiction. How do you start? I'll tell you the place to start. The Great Gatsby is a wonderful place to start because it's 76 pages. You can read it in a day, and you get so swept away by the quality of the writing so quickly um, that it's just you sink into it, and before you know it, the book is over. A.J. Bain, the author of White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. Thanks so much for being here. Such a pleasure. I thank you so much. Check out the book. Check out his books on Truman, on fast cars and fast planes. He's on social media at twitter.com slash A.J. Bain. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.